I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 62 of Talking Golf History. Today's episode is part of our Masters March series and concludes my four-part podcast series with Masters announcer Ben Wright. Over this series, we have heard Ben Wright talk about his friendship with Ben Hogan being the producer that put the Beatles on TV for the first time, watching Jack Nicklaus shed a tear for a fellow competitor. He's spoken about how he felt guilty for jinxing a player and even punching out another tour pro. In total, I've spent six hours hanging out with Ben and his lovely wife. They've welcomed me into their home and shared the most delightful stories with all of us. Our final episode of this four-part series includes new stories from the life and times of Ben Wright and some additional depth to those stories you've already heard. A special thanks to the Golf Heritage Society. If it hadn't been for Ben Wright's story in their publication, The Golf, this series would have never have happened. On that very note, I am planning to host a monthly live Zoom interview series via the Golf Heritage Society. We hope to bring on historians, architects, authors, and artists to discuss their stories about the game. We are trying to finalize the timing, but I am hopeful in the month of March, Dr. Bob Jones IV will join us for a chat. Without further ado, my friend, Ben Wright. Well, it all started at my boarding school, Felstead. Uh, which is in the wilds of Essex, England. And uh, the late Queen Mother was our patron. Uh, A very high-class school, educationally more perhaps than anything else. But um, I got to learn golf from a gentleman who was left-handed but became uh, the captain of Cambridge University uh, after he went up from school to Cambridge. And uh, I became pretty proficient on the school grounds at that I was too handicapped at the age of 17, which was r- quite rare in those days, immediately after the Second World War. And I was playing with pre-war equipment and pre-war balls, which were like furnace coke. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, there was a shortage of rubber, right? So that yeah. would have been a major yeah. issue. Were they hickory shafted clubs? Yeah. Um, I had they some, early steel? I had some and I had some early steel. Post-war England, uh, there was not a lot of money to be spent no, on the game no. of golf. No, absolutely not. And we would play around the school grounds, which were very large, and we'd aim from tree to tree. You know, and then I was second head of the school, and I would play nine irons from the lawn in front of my study to the cricket square in the middle of the cricket field, and I was a member of the cricket 11 as well. In fact, uh, my partner and I were the best schoolboy opening bowlers of the year 1951 in the Wisden Almanac, which is, the, you know, the annual of cricket. And uh, I had it banned. My housemaster was the cricket coach, and he said, you're playing these nine hours to our square, our pitch. And Sacred the, pitch, right? Yeah, and every... And every Shot you hit makes a divot. And how dare you? I mean, he banned the game. 
Banned golf. Banned golf. Ben Wright is responsible for the banning of the game of golf. <laughs> King James II did it first, and his cricket master did it the second. <laughs> um, so, anyhow, uh, as I had to go into the army, obviously, you know, national service was mandatory. And I was called up into the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. And I really am very lacking in knowledge of anything electrical right. and it's mechanical. It's the worst, worst call-up in the history of call-ups, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I was the first lot to uh, volunteer for a Russian language course. And uh, if you fell below 40%, after three months, they sent you back to the unit. So I didn't want that to happen to me. So I studied diligently and I was sent to the School of Oriental Languages in London. I did a first class honors degree course in 15 months and, and was I was going to be stationed in Korea, but the reason why I was called up into Remy, as it was known, was I had childhood asthma. And when they found out I had childhood asthma, they said, no career. They sent me to Berlin, and I would interrogate deserters from the Russian army in Berlin. And we worked on the premise that one in eight was a plant. And uh, if they didn't cooperate, we'd send them up, send them up the corridor, and uh, someone would whack them about two by four, and and they'd come back and sing like canaries. And uh, that was no fun, no golf, no nothing. Um, but I, I did go AWOL. Yeah, you did. We covered that in the last story yeah. too, right? <laughs> so. Eventually, I got out, and as I, uh, I was telling you earlier, the guy who had accepted my story on the England hockey trial at my school uh, was sports editor of the Sunday Times, and he said, when you get out of the service, you still want to be a journalist, I've got a job for you. He gave me a job as cub reporter in um, the Manchester Daily Dispatch. I had a very nasty, fractious relationship with the night news editor who regarded me as a public school toff. In other words, bloody rich kid. And he was a hard-working Yorkshire man. He was also very revolting. He was extraordinarily fat and bald-headed and Sweat poured out of his bald head every day as he sat on his stool. And I got my first uh, byline by writing about a terrible crash in a snowstorm on the Pennine Moors outside of Manchester. There was a crash between a truckload of sugar and a teenage, a coach of teenage mill workers. And there was blood and sugar everywhere. I mean, it was very ugly. And I came back and I, I penned my epic, which he said, you know, this is your first opportunity. And I penned it and I said, by John Bentley hyphen Wright, which was my given name. And the Morris Wigglesworth, this vile person. Perfect name for the person, right? Yes. Wigglesworth, right? Yes, yeah. yes. He said, uh, John Bentley hyphen something right. Do you think we run the columns of this newspaper horizontally to accommodate your effing name? <laughs> he said, unless you want to spend the rest of your mediocre career in total anonymity, You'll change that name and shorten it forthwith. And I call myself Ben after Mr. Hogan, my idol, and I've uh, been Ben Wright ever since. In fact, anybody who writes to me 
and calls me Dear John, doesn't get a reply. Really? It means yeah. they don't know you. They don't know me. So that was really a great start for me. And um, then Lord Kemsley, who owned the paper, decided to fold it up and let the Daily Mirror come and print on his presses in, in Manchester, their northern edition. So I got shown the door, and um, I went to work for the Daily Mirror against my religious principles, or any other principle. And they eventually fired me because I kept pushing golf, and the Daily Mirror didn't deal in golf. Yeah, you had the hook. <laughs> I started a freelance, and then in 19, April 1966, I played in what is known as the Halford Hewitt Cup. 64 of the best schools in England put out teams in a knockout, and they have five alternate shot foursomes. So there's always a result. And if your match is the deciding one, and it's not over by the 18th, you go on until it finishes and on my debut, my I won for our team on the 20th hole. On the 20th hole? On the 20th hole. And this, unfortunately, they made us play in a blizzard. You know, typical British stupidity, <laughs> stupidity and upper lip rubbish. Just Stiff upper lip. Storm through it. You know. And we, I mean, I wore my army greatcoat between shots and and the snow was coming horizontally at Royal Sankport Steel coming off the channel horizontally so we were like covered like snowmen but the snow was going five miles inland before it landed and then the change of the tide the the wind dropped to nothing and we were covered, and the ground was covered in in 20 minutes. And a guy came ringing a bell, uh, said, you, you, you know, you called it now. And at the entrance to, uh, it was Sandwich I was playing at, Royal St. George's Sandwich, you could get a half-pint silver tankard full of cognac or malt whiskey. When you came into the clubhouse, tell you how ridiculous it was. Three gentlemen who took part in that day had heart attacks within a month. No way. Yes. Wow. Anyhow, my uh, opponents were from another much vaunted school called Winchester, and uh, one was son of the chairman of the English Golf Union. And the other was the advertising director for the Financial Times pink newspaper of London, our equivalent to your Wall Street Journal. And um, we decided we might get a little schnockered uh, because we, were go we thought we were candidates for pneumonia. And so we got fairly schnockered. And suddenly, Richard McLean, the advertising director of the Financial Times, said to me, you want to write a golf column for the Financial Times? <laughs> and I said, well, Richard, that's very nice of you, but <laughs> that's a financial paper, not a sports paper. And he said, rubbish, dear boy. He said, rubbish. Can you think of... Anybody in the city of London who doesn't play golf? And I said, well, I wouldn't know. And he said, well, I'll guarantee 90% of the guys working in the city of London play golf. And so he said, I'm going back. I'm going to fix up an interview with you. And I'll call you and you can get yourself down from Manchester where I was freelancing, and uh, they arranged 
my interview with the editor of the Financial Times, Sir Gordon Newton, for the following Tuesday. Tournament finished on Sunday. And I presented myself to Sir Gordon Newton, who had been knighted for his services to journalism. We shot the breeze for a while, and he said, I'm going to send you up the corridor, and you can write a column for next Tuesday. And if I like it, I'll pay you. And if you don't like what I pay you, you'll obviously tell me to go to hell. So I did the column, and they put the headline on it, a test for Townsend, because we had a young Walker Cup player called Peter Townsend who turned pro, but he was still an amateur and was playing in the Brabazon Trophy, the English Stroke Play Championship for amateurs. And I, they titled the article, A Test for Townsend. And I picked him to win, and he won by seven. Wow. So I was summoned to uh, Sir Gordon Newton's office uh, the following week, and uh, he said, we're going for lunch at the Garrett Club. Uh, I've got to tell you that the Earl of Droida, who is also on the board of this paper, he and I are betting men, and we had a sizable wager on Peter Townsend. Based on your recommendation? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've got the job if you, if you like what we pay you. And he said, the world is your oyster. You can go anywhere you like. You feel that you need to go to get a good golf story and just send me the bill. That does not happen. Isn't does it? not have. I mean, all the journalists that are listening right now are in awe, right? I mean, everyone's on a budget nowadays, especially nowadays, right? Yes. To, yes. to basically say the world is your oyster. Yes. Go wherever you like and send me the bill. Yes. And so I did that for 24 years. Yeah. Where did it take you? All over the world. Like, what are your reminisce um, here? So well, Amer- America. Yeah. Ben Hogan, right? Well, I hadn't been. I hadn't been to America at that stage. Uh, In the 70s, I went to Australia for the first time. Then in 72, I was signed up by CBS television. And it was really weird because I was at the Masters, uh, which I'd started for my newspaper, the FT, at six. In 1968, and Roberto de Vicenzo's terrible oh, tragedy yeah. of yeah. the year. That was my first master's for oh. the newspaper. Anyhow, in 1972, the uh, boss of CBS TV Golf, Bill McPhail, whose brother Lee was commissioner of ABA, I think, something like that, Bas- basketball. Yeah. A- anyhow... Um, he burst in to the men's grill at Augusta National. I was, I'd been out till a very late hour with Dan Jenkins, and we were having a remedial breakfast. <laughs> and uh, Mr. McPhail said, Does anyone know a goddamn limey who can speak halfway decent? And Dan Jenkins got his index finger, and <laughs> unbeknown to me, above your head, pointed above my head yeah. to me. He said, "Our man in London," because I was stringing for Sports Illustrated and Time. You know, I was just writing, though. Yeah, I mean, and uh, uh, he, he, he Jenkins, Jenkins said, "You can't do better than our man in London," because I was working for BBC. And ITV and so on. And uh, McPhail said, "You wanna, you wanna announce the Masters, boy." This is at Augusta National. Yeah, in the men's grill. In the men's grill. Yeah. And you're sitting with Dan Jenkins. Well, what had <laughs> happened? Henry Longhurst, who'd been at the Diner Shore, and had had very bad weather in Palm Springs, 
was in the university hospital in Augusta with pneumonia. Oh, no, yeah. So I got the job, but not before I turned it down. Ben, what I, are we doing here? <laughs> I said, look, I've got too much work. You know, I was doing, I think it was, it was ITV then, and I was doing the newspaper. I was doing a, a glossy magazine called uh, Golf World UK. And I said, I can't, I can't do it with the best will in the world. I'm getting paid to do these other jobs. And he said, you don't think you're going to get paid for announcing the masses? <laughs> and I said, well, I thought it had already been announced. And McPhail said, are you playing wise-ass with me, boy? I said, no, Mr. McPhail, but you realize I speak English. We talk about commentating. An announcer announces the start of something, but a commentator describes the action. Now, do you want me to commentate? And he said, I'm asking you. And I said, well, I'll see if I can get someone to stand in for me. And I got a good friend, Di Davis, who was golf correspondent of the Birmingham Post in England. He called himself forevermore the real Ben Wright. And he did a very good job imitating my style. So, so I got, wait, 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 wait. Were his articles written with Ben Wright's yes. signature on it? Yes. He was a ghostwriter for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's how I came yeah. to announce the Masters. In the men's grill. Yeah. And they always put the rookie at the 14th hole because you got very little air time. Yeah, and this before they even showed the first yeah. nine holes in the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. You, got, you know, they show you the putting because it was such an eccentric green. Uh, but anyhow, as luck would have it, the following year, Peter Oosterhaus is in the lead when they had a two-day washout. And they fetched me from the 14th Tower and got me to interview Peter Oosterhaus in the butler cabin. And I was wearing everything I could lay my hands on because it was freezing cold, raining, just wicked when the rain out came. And uh, so they, they pushed me in front of the lights with Pat Summerall. And Pat Summerall said, our man from across the pond has known Peter Oosterhaus since he was 50. Uh, and I, over to him. And I did a 27-minute fill with Peter Oosterhaus, who I'd indeed known since he was 15. And then we had to hand over to the news, but we had to go until 5 o'clock. So I... Filled in 27 minutes. 27 minutes. Anyhow, I got pretty good credit for that. 27 minutes is a long time of yeah, fill. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you cover? Like, what do you cover in 27 minutes? Oh, about his childhood and, 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 and you know, how he had a Dutch father and an English mother. Went to Dulwich, another high-class public school, Dulwich College. Yeah, I mean, you know, and how he'd been you know, brought up to play in Europe. He hadn't achieved anything in America at this time. So I went back to the uh, digs that I was sharing with Pat Summerall. And I said, Pat, why the hell did you get me in from the tower to do the interview with, with Peter Oosterhaus? He said, for one good reason, Ben, I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's Anyhow, pretty good. He was afraid of getting it wrong. Yeah. But, but the great thing that about this whole interview was that Clifford Roberts, who'd had to vet me, by the way, before I went on, and uh, he wrote to McPhail and said, McPhail, you will move this young... Englishman, 
to a more prominent place, and that's how I got 15 for the rest of my career. Yeah. So I did 15th from 74 to 95 inclusive. 21 years on, on 15th, yeah. And I had 16th when Henry died for a couple of masses. And uh, so I was very grateful to Clifford Roberts. I must tell you how I was vetted by Clifford Roberts. McPhail said you've got to be vetted by Clifford Roberts. This is now when he said that, that's, you're in the grill. Is this back to yes, the grill? Yeah. Okay. You've got to be vetted by Clifford Roberts. And if you, Roberts likes you, we'll be good to go and, yeah. and we'll pay you accordingly, yeah. which, which they did was princely sum for me. Had you ever met Clifford Roberts prior to this? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you knew he was basically the czar of Augusta yeah. National. Yeah. To be feared. Yeah. Uh, and, and had a really mean reputation. Absolutely. Still does to this day. Yeah. And so McPhail took me down to his cottage, pushed me in through the door, and fled like <laughs> a craven coward. He didn't coward. even come in he with was. you for the introduction. <laughs> He threw you into the lion's lion's den. I said, good afternoon, Mr. Roberts. He said, good afternoon, young Wright. He said, do you like tea to drink like most of you limeys? And I said, yes, sir. I love a cup of tea. He said, there is Augusta National's finest tea service. Help yourself. Well, I burned my mouth. And uh, eventually slurped it down. And he said, you ready? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, "Um, yes, Mr. Roberts, I'm ready. He said, talk to me, boy. I said, what would you like me to talk about, Mr. Roberts? He said, I don't care, just talk to me, boy. So I started gabbling on about my career that kind of thing, and I've been going fully minute and a half, and he said, stop. And I thought, oh you're dear, blo- you're blown, <laughs> right? you're blown it. That's right. You know, and uh, I was extremely worried and upset, and uh, he said, uh, young Wright, he said, you want, probably want to know why I stopped you so soon. And I said, well, I would like to know if you don't mind, Mr. Roberts. And he said, well, I'll tell you. Last year, that ass McPhail flew in a Scotsman from Glasgow called Bob Ferrier, whose daddy, called wee Bobby Ferrier, played soccer for Scotland. And I couldn't understand Fucking word, he said, excuse my language. No, you're fine, you're fine. If, and, uh, but you all do. Wow. Said it just like that. Just like that. But yeah. you all do. Have yeah. a good week. You'll do. Yeah. Unbelievable. Isn't it really? I mean, and... Uh, Did you interact with him ever again after that moment? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he became uh, quite fond of me. He liked my style. And uh, he was happy that he moved me to 15. And Oh, yeah, he was really good to me. I mean, uh, after that. Yeah, you never had a moment where you thought you were going to incur his wrath? Oh, I incurred the wrath of the uh, Greencoats in 1975. Um, I referred to Lee Elder, the first, black golfer ever to play in the Masters as the leading black golfer. And I was hauled up before the Greencoats, the TV and radio committee, and they said, "Um, Mr. Wright, we believe you referred to Mr. Eller as the leading black golfer. We would prefer in future that you call him the leading golfer of his race. Interesting. So they were very specific on how things were. Well, yeah. You know, 
it, it was quite scary, uh, broadcasting the masters. You know, because you knew that if you made a boo-boo and you were not allowed to use money, you were playing for a green jacket, you're not allowed to mention the commercial tournament. In mm -hmm. other words, the Andy Williams, you know. Or the Pebble Beach Clam Bank yes, or anything and, like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so you had to be on the lookout. And, of course, I warned Gary McCord before he started. I said, now, just throttle back, my friend. We were. We were enemies on the tube, but we were good friends, really. And, um, of course, he has to blow his mouth off about bikini wax. Bikini wax greens. And, yeah. uh, but the thing that really offended them, apparently, were those who had served in the Second World War. He talked about body bags by those that went over the 17th green. And, uh, of course, he had it written into his contract that he didn't have to do the masters, and that's what was the end of that. Yeah, they just took care of that part of his yeah. contract. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it's difficult. Um, I mean, I think so many people love his levity, but that is not a place for levity. They, no. they don't. They don't want you to no be relaxed in that. Room. No. Did you ever, I'd say, catch yourself about to say something that might be misconstrued by the green coats as you put them and then stopped? I mean, were you ever, you know, did you ever find yourself wanting to say something and then you hold back? No, I never did, as a matter of fact, because after that Lee Elder incident, I was forewarned, you know, and so I made sure I didn't do anything that could offend the green coats. Put you in a position of... A difficult one, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not the easiest place to broadcast, but I loved every minute of my time there. I mean, I had, and of course, my call on Nicholas in 86 was. Yeah, please. One of my. Tell people, I know the story, uh, but if you wouldn't mind sharing it. Yeah. On well, 15. He uh, hits a forearm to. Exactly the same spot he did and missed in 1975. And he has this pup for an eagle. And I said, uh, Jack Nicholas and his son Jackie have studied this pup from every conceivable angle. And this for the eagle to go. I think it was seven under. And uh, of course he hold it. And I said, yes, sir. There's life in the old bear yet. And, uh, of course, uh, Vern Lundquist said 20 minutes later, yeah. yes, sir, on 17. On 17 when he sank the birdie. And, and took the credit for, it took him 33 years. Yeah, I saw the, I think he came out and said that maybe subconsciously he heard you and it, it stuck in his head and it came yeah. back out. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it lives in lore when 20 minutes prior, it came from your mouth, right? Yes. Anyhow, uh, I suppose that was my best-known call. Although it sounded like the one with Longhurst was much better. Oh, much better, in, right? my, in my opinion. I mean, a, a beautiful tandem conversation. Yes, well, you know, in 1975, Miller, Johnny Miller was playing catch-up. He was not in it after 36 yeah. holes, but he shot 65-66. And um, Weisskopf, who, you know, was to finish second four times at Augusta National, yeah. uh, was locked with Nicholas as they came to my hole. And um, Nicholas was on 16, and uh, backed off to let Weisskopf putt for birdie at 15, which I was describing. And I said, when Weisskopf hold the putt, that will be evil music ringing in Jack Nicklaus's ear, ears as he waits to putt on 16. 
and then Jack steps up, parts, holds it from 40 feet, and Henry Longhurst said, and Jack Nicholas has just made some really evil music of his own. That's the finest putt I ever saw. I have goosebumps right now. <laughs> yeah, well, you it's know, so good. Frank Chikinian, who became, who hated me at first, because I was pointed over his head. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, hated me at first and paid me no attention whatsoever. Kate became my closest friend. God rest his soul. I made him appreciate what I could do for the show, for yeah. his show. Yeah, his show, for his, sure. Always his show. his show. Absolutely. He was a genius, total genius. I feel really privileged to work for a man I had so much admiration for. Frank was an absolute genius. And, of course, he would excoriate people if they talked too much. On the telecast. For, yeah, 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 on the telecast. He would say to us, shut the something up and let it play. And I remember many, many times he would say that. And when I called 15, the noise was so great in 1986 that, that greeted that eagle that I couldn't hear Frank. It was the only time in my 20-something years with Frank that I couldn't hear what he said. So I laid out and let them walk to the 16th uh, tee. And um, we always had a cookout after the final round, and Weisskopf was cooking steaks that night, uh, having announced the 13th hole. And um, uh, I remember I Frank came in late because he, you know, had to close up shop and everything. And I said, Frank, I'm... I've got to apologize. I, I didn't say anything because I couldn't hear what you told me. And he said, dear boy, that's the greatest piece of announcing you ever did. I wish some of your American colleagues would stay quiet every now and again. Just no, having the presence to back off the mic. Yeah. What was he like as a boss? I mean, you said he in was, the early days he didn't like you. Maybe give me a little idea. What was it? He was Just brutal. Because. He was brutal. If you didn't do it for him, he'd fire you. I mean, he fired a lot of people off the Masters. He fired Rick Barry at Westchester when Rick, I couldn't believe why he did it. He missed rehearsal. And, of course, that was a cardinal sin. And eventually he shows up and Frank puts a camera on him as he climbed a 60-foot tower to do the announcer's, you know, recorded yeah. piece. And Frank said, as he came up with Rick and his wife with matching outfits, tennis outfits, he said uh, in a very quiet voice, when Rick had sat down, Rick, you obviously don't know that I regard it as very important that you do rehearsal like everyone else. And here you are turning up with your wife in matching tennis outfits. Now get the hell off my tower and never darken it again. Wow. Waited for him to go all the way up, knowing he was up there, yeah. just to make an example out of him. Yeah, and he would be quite brutal and ethnically so. I mean, you couldn't get away with things that he said. You know, uh, he called me a limey bastard every now and again. Um, so even when you're on his good side, you're only two shakes away from being on his bad side? Was it, Yeah, but he eventually got to be... Warm to me. He didn't like me because I was appointed over his head. You know, because he was not known as the Ayatollah for nothing. It was his province. 
and he was the boss, and you better believe it. But the product was so great, I felt, that, you know, it was so superior to anything else available. Um, and that's arrogant of me to sure. say. What, what do you think made it different? What was the, uh, well, the what immense, was the magic sauce, if you will? The, well, the, there would be long periods of silence where he would get down your throat if you if you utter the word. He demanded silence and letting the moment speak for itself. Yeah, hear the birds. Yes, or whatever. It heightened it heightened the drama in my humble opinion. And uh, I came to admire him so much that we, we, we became bosom buddies. He phoned me the Monday in the week he died. He died on the Friday. And he phoned me and he said, Ben, my friend, my time is up. I, I said, don't say that, Frank. God will decide that, not you. And uh, he was dead Friday. Cancer. Well, you know, he smoked unfiltered camels. Uh, kiss of death. With due respect. Yeah. And he gave it up too late. But um, the man was a genius. There was a no... No question about that. I'm damn sorry he didn't do an autobiography. I would have done it for him if only he'd asked. But he didn't want it. He didn't. He didn't want accolades. He wanted his show to be his accolade. I get that. Yeah. You know the excellence of his product. That was the only accolade he wanted. And I would say that that story that piece de resistance if you will i mean sets today i mean you feel his presence when you watch the masters broadcast today yeah don't you yes i mean i think he's as much of that legendary experience yes. as anybody you know i was really sorry that they chose not to give him an honorary membership before he died he's uh, of course, he was put in the Hall of Fame after he died. Yeah. But that was another... All those accolades terrible, after. Yeah. Terrible insult. My mother used to say, God bless her, that don't give me flowers when I'm dead. Give me them when I'm alive. And there's a lot to be said for that. Out of all of your experiences at uh, at the Masters, up in those towers, what stand out to you? What what moments do you kind of reflect on? Obviously, it's going to be Nicholas in, in 75 and 86. Yes. I, one thing that was the most scary experience I had, we were, were sometimes allowed a, a bathroom break between a rehearsal and a show on Sunday. But sometimes we weren't. And uh, so first time that we were, I went down and Joe Dye, then, you know, uh, the boss man of U USGA, yeah. was white as a sheet and shaking. And I said, Joe, because we were good friends, what on earth's going on? What's the matter? He said... Ben, I've just faced the worst thing that I ever faced as an official at the Masters. And I said, what prey was that? He said, well, Jack Nicholas hit his second shot into the bank across the pond on the far side of the pond, and it, it was below the water line, but he could still play. So he took off his right sock and shoe and strode into the pond with one foot in the pond. He said, just two minutes before, I saw a complete flock of 
water moccasins in that same position. Oh, wow. And he said, I had to make up my mind, Ben, whether to tell Jack or not. And he said, and I reflected for a few minutes and decided it was, it was no good to tell him. And then I thought if I cause him to die. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Isn't that something? And he was, like, broken up about it. Yes. Yeah. Broken up about it. That was definitely one of the most extraordinary experiences I ever had. Another one is, um, it's a little raunchy, maybe. Let's go for it. Why not? Uh, I, Frank wouldn't let us have a bathroom break because we, apparently we had to go early right? on the final day. Consequently, I was bursting uh, for relief. When I mean, I, you're up in that tower forever. Yes. Yeah, exactly. No restroom up there, I assume. So the only guy allowed up the tower <laughs> was the chairman of the network, president of the network, because there'd been too many, and my cameraman... Uh, who who since long dead uh, complained? Yeah, that he couldn't couldn't work. The yeah, I mean everybody would want to go on the tower yeah. if they. Yeah, could yeah, right. Sure. So, um, the the gentleman who shall be nameless was president of the network, and I said, "I'm I'm in a mess. I have got a pee. Don't worry, dear boy." He went down. He scooped up as many cups as he could find, and he fed them to me under the desk. Master's cups, essentially. Master's cups. <laughs> right. And then each one that I filled, when I filled it, he would just nudge it off the end of the tub. <laughs> Hopefully no poor soul was rained upon. <laughs> and that, that, I'll tell you what, that was really, really painful. I can only imagine. Oh, I mean, it was appalling, beyond belief. But, I mean, what are you going to do? Right? Exactly. I mean, it's Mother Nature, essentially. Mm, Exactly. I mean, and you're in full view. Yeah, you're not going anywhere. You're announcing the masters. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'll never forget that because he was so good and so supportive. And uh, I don't think he'd like me to mention his name. No, that's... Well, I mean... He helped you. Yes, he did. Right? It's not, I mean, it's not a bad story for him. If anything, I think it was a kindness he did yeah, for you. Yeah, but the problem is, Connor, I've forgotten his name. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. That's quite all right. That's a tremendous thing he did for you, though. What other stories do you want to, want to share about your time at the, the Masters? Well, Sevy Ballesters and I had a wonderful relationship, but he was a very volatile fellow. I was the first guy ever to write about him. And I did a piece for Sports Illustrated in which I went to the family home in Pedrena, Spain. And uh, they put the headline on it, The New Rain in Spain. It was a very wonderful headline. And, um, well, uh, 1986, you will remember... He had a terrible second shot at 15 with me announcing. And I said, as the ball took off, that ball is destined for the water. And when it hit the middle of the water, I said, that was a quite dreadful shot. And Sevy had the lead at the time. And a lot of people don't know, but on Monday after the Masters, in all the outlets, uh, merchandise outlets, and the pro shop, they cut by 50%, 50% off everything. And um, I, when, I always used to hunt for bargains on Monday morning. And I'm hunting, and Sevi always was keen on the bargain. And he was there, and... He came up to me and he said, uh, Ben, right, I thought you were my friend, 
But yesterday you were very cruel to me, calling my second shot at 15 a quite dreadful shot. It was not a quite dreadful shot. It was a bad choice of club. I said, Sevi, you hurt yourself. I didn't hurt you. I mean, I just described what I believe to be a quite dreadful shot. And I'm judging you by your standards. And he said, nevertheless, uh, I think you were far too cruel to me. And I am really ticked off. So I said, I'm sorry. And he never spoke to me from that time in April to next February. And we were at Pebble Beach having a lunch with Frank Chikinian at a big round table at Club 19, but out in the beautiful sunshine. It was a gorgeous day. And suddenly there's a tap on my shoulder that's rather more than a tap. <laughs> so I spun round, and there's Seve. And he gives me that incredible smile, which is one of the beautiful, most beautiful smiles I ever saw, and said, Ben, my friend, it was a quite dreadful shock. And we were good friends again until his untimely death. God rest his soul. I, I love Sevi. I loved him like a son, really, uh, although he wasn't that much younger than me, but um, it seemed like a lot. <laughs> But, you know, he was that volatile guy. Nobody wore the fire on their shoulder more than Seve. You're right. Am I right? Yeah, right. But, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my good friend Ben Crenshaw, uh, we have had a lasting friendship. He, I did a lot of broadcasting with him in, in various towers around the nation. And we always got on well together on the clear understanding that it was a no-smoking tower. And of course, the minute he got down, he lit up a cigarette. But, you know, he said to me that he had never seen anything like Seve. Of course, he obviously was too young for Hogan, really. And um, I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, Ben, he imagines more shots that the rest of us couldn't conceive than I can believe possible. He said, that boy is a genius. And I, I you know, I, I go along with that. And for it to come from him was great, I thought. I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of Ben Crenshaw. In fact, I took myself to rural Nebraska the Prairie Club, a couple of years, three years ago. And I uh, went to see Sand Hills. We drove from the Prairie Club to Sand Hills about 100 miles. It's in the middle of nowhere. It never saw a vehicle either it's way. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Only one dwelling. And I went to the golf course and I went on a tour of the golf course and I was so impressed by it. I wrote a letter to Ben saying exactly that and how it enjoyed one of his hamburgers. Called they the, are fantastic. Called the Crenshaw Hamburger. Yeah. And uh, he wrote a beautiful letter back to me. But, I mean, that that's kid's a genius. I call him kid, but, uh, you know, he, to me he's a kid. But... Um, you know, he was, I would say, you know, if you ask me some of my favorite players, he would be high on the list. And what about him puts you so high on the list? Well, I, you know, he gave me a putting lesson one time at Firestone Country Club in Akron. And I putted like God for a few weeks. And I couldn't miss for a oh. few weeks. He, uh, he was... Best putter I, I think I ever saw. Uh, although Bobby Locke. Oh, Bobby Locke. Putts. 
I, you know something, Connor? I played many times with Bobby Locke, as a matter of fact. And Bobby was unbelievably cruel to me. If cruel? I, if I left a putt short, he would say, You know, Master, I don't know why you bothered. Because he couldn't stand anybody leaving a putt short. Never up, never in, right? Never up, never in. And uh, I remember one time we played together in a charity event in Yorkshire at a place called Moortown, Leeds. Yes. Very good golf. Alistair McKenzie course. Uh, They played the 1929 Ryder Cup there. Yeah, right. And um, he hit the hole with all 18 first putts. Wow. Nine stayed in. And nine lipped out. And he shot 63, I think. Unbelievable. But he said, you see what I mean, master? He always called me master. You see what I mean now? You can't get it in the hole unless you hit it in the hole. What was Bobby Locke like? He was such an unathletic, I mean, he had Big pot belly. Jowls. Jowls. Yeah, the jowls. Absolutely. But, my goodness, he could play. But he hit everything with banana hook. Including his putts. He always said he hooked putts. (laughs) Well, he would say, Master, you open the door and you close the door. You open and you close. And then he went through 90 degrees. But it worked for him. And he got that overspin with that method, which enabled him to go past the hole most of the time. But he was always confident in holding the one back. He was reviled for many of his years for playing slow because he was a, I'd say early on in his career, he was methodical in how he played. He would walk up to the green from 50 yards out to see where it was going to land to set him up for the best putts. Oh, yes, absolutely. He was sometimes could be a pain. I mean, he was he was ruling the tour here till they kicked him off. Yeah, they kicked him off the tour. Absolutely. Yeah, on a technicality, it was something to do. He Alfred won the Open, the British Open. Oh no, you're right. Yes, he, he didn't come back straight away. He was actually scheduled to play in a tournament. That's and right. Cancelled. Yes. Without really giving him much notice. Yes. Exactly. And they used right. it to kick him off. Yeah. Unbelievable. And he ruled Europe until Peter Thompson came along. And Thompson is another of my closer friends who died recently, of course. In fact, he was incredibly good to me. Tell me a little bit about Peter. I, well, I, have, a, I have a game we're going to play. We'll finish it let here. Me, let, me, let me tell you, because this is a story that I should have told you long ago. 1954, British Open, Birkdale, Royal Birkdale. I was doing a a sidebar for the Manchester Daily Dispatch, my my first newspaper. And my boss was a gentleman called Archie Ledbrook. And he was a bridge fanatic. So we lost two rounds Friday. He said, I'm going to do the lead story. But I want you to capture an in-depth interview with, with the winner long after I've left to go to play in the bridge tournament back in Manchester. And I said, okay. So I went to Peter Thompson, and I was only 21. Uh, and I went to Thompson, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Thompson, Alfred won. Uh, I want, if you would, spare a little of your valuable time. I've been told to do an in-depth interview with you. And he said, what are you doing for dinner, son? And I said, immortal words, I said, Mr. Thompson, cub reporters don't have dinner plans. (laughs) And he said, well, you do now, meet. Meet me at the Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport 
at 7.30 and we'll have dinner for two and then we'll do this piece for you. So I got there early uh, on purpose and the dining room was upstairs, the bar down below and I run upstairs and there's a claret jug on the table oh. for two. So I went back to the bar grabbed a freelance photographer uh, who I knew vaguely and I said, I've got to get you to get me a picture of Peter Thompson and, and myself with a, with a claret jug, yeah. jug between us. I said, easy. And he did it. And they published 1,500 words on Monday. We didn't do a Sunday paper on that, on that newspaper. And... Um, I was made uh, assistant sports editor on the Tuesday. No raise, wow. but, but a yeah. title. <laughs> but a title. <laughs> the best reward ever. Not giving you more money, but calling you something different. Yeah, but one of my ex-wives had a bonfire of my memorabilia. Oh, no! When she was divorcing me, and uh, that went on that dreadful fire. Oh. Um, but... I mean, uh, Peter was always kind to me when I went to Australia, took me to his home. I mean, it was um, uh, let me drink. He let me drive his E-Type Jaguar because I was dating Miss Australia. <laughs> well, that didn't hurt. Five-time uh, Open champion, <laughs> Peter Thompson. I traveled as a club reporter with Manchester United Soccer Club and... I was leaving uh, the, the newspaper office one evening in 1958 to go to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, for Manchester United's quarterfinal against Red Star Belgrade, the army team there. And Mr. Murphy, the, the one-eyed Irishman, happened to see me in the corridor with my suitcase, and he said, where are you going, young right? And I said, Belgrade, Yugoslavia, Mr. Murphy. He said, the hell you are. You're not even dry behind the ears, boy. Uh, where's your boss? And I said, he's playing in a bridge tournament. He said, well, tell him to get his ass to Belgrade, and you go home to your digs and wait your opportunity. Well, cut a long story short, Manchester United won the game, and the plane crashed at, oh. at Munich on the fourth takeoff. Three had aborted in a snowstorm, and the fourth, it failed to get up and hit a chimney, and half the team were killed. I attended 14 funerals in five days. Unbelievable. Including my boss. Yeah, you know, it weighed very heavily. So he went. He so, went. And you were supposed to be there. Yeah. So that could have been you. It could have been me, and instead he lost his life. Oh, my. It wasn't, wasn't too good. I was pretty devastated. And it was then that I decided I, I better get out of the soccer business. But um, I did the 1966 World Cup at Wembley, and I started traveling with Brazil when the thing started, but they got kicked out by uh, the Portuguese who gave Pelé a grievous injury and destroyed Brazil's hopes. And I, then I went to Uruguay, and then I went to Argentina, and then I went to West Germany for the final because the number one soccer writer uh, was uh, on the Sunday Times, which I was stringing for, uh, was representing England. So England won 4-3 in overtime, and um, I quit. I said, that's, I've got, that's as high as I can get. And uh, it was after then 
that I concentrated on golf. Well, and we're all thankful you did. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> I don't do a history of soccer uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and with those words, we conclude this four-part podcast with my friend Ben Wright. As you hopefully have learned with the hours we've shared together, Ben is a delightful gentleman. And while he can no longer play the game, no one can question his everlasting love for golf. At the age of 88, his stories are full of glorious historical details, and they are shared with the passion of a man in his 20s. During our time together, I have seen him peer back in time to recall the stories of our heroes. I have seen him in near tears with regrets, and perhaps more than anything, I will remember his laugh. I haven't known Ben Wright for his whole life, but in a strange way, I feel like I was there with him on his journey. Until we depart on our next journey, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.